Welcome to E2 Talks. It's a podcast where we chat about the English language landscape. In this podcast, Jay is joined by Nick Jenkins, the founder of Language Confidence, an AI-driven software as a service product that gives students automatic corrective feedback on their pronunciation. In this discussion, Jay and Nick talk about pronunciation broadly and more specifically how AI can help students develop better speech habits. They talk about language confidence's origins, what it can currently do, and what it will be able to do in the near future. They also touch on many other topics pertinent to pronunciation teaching, learning, and technology. Take a listen. Hello, Nick. How's it going? Hey, doing actually pretty good, all things considered, in the world at the moment. So, yeah, pretty good. And yourself? Yeah, I'm well. I'm well. Whereabouts in the world are you? Uh, currently in beautiful Sydney. Oh, so nice. In, in our shared office. Uh, down in Chinatown called Haymarket HQ. Cool, nice. So Nick, can you give us a bit of background on yourself and how language confidence came about? Yeah, um, the short version is it's it's my third startup. The first one I had, uh, I sold when I was 21. Um, the second one was in, in our, our space, in the online education space and failed pretty spectacularly. I think we did just about everything wrong that you, you could. Um, so it was a, an online, uh, it was an app for teaching kids to, to speak English and just delivering content to them. And that took us to China. Um, so I spent nearly three years in China and obviously when the, the business wound up, I needed something to do. So I was teaching English uh, when I got my TESOL qualification. And um, when I was teaching, I had this idea, I was like, hey, you know, when looking at what we learned in the, the, the app space, looking at your babbles and your Duolingos of the world, um, none of them really give students good quality feedback for their, their spoken input. Um, we actually did a really great video where we compare um, us to some of the bigger names in the space like Rosetta Stone and Babbel and, and show how much more accurate the tech is that we built. So yeah, I wanted to be able to emulate what I could do as a, a teacher um, but fully automate that so it improves the, the learning experience as a whole and really focus on, on spoken English. Nice, interesting. I find that even in the classroom, pronunciation's a neglected uh, topic. One of the reasons is um, it's difficult if you have a classroom of 35 students to actually give individualized feedback for each student. It's basically impossible. If it's an hour-long class, that means students are getting two minutes from the teacher. So is that something you've thought about? Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to do. So when, when I was teaching, I'd, I'd ask my students to say something. And as a human, individually, I could pick where they were going wrong and one-on-one say, okay, you went wrong here, here, and here. Listen to me, watch me, uh, and then we'll try it again and try with different words, the same sounds, different content, different context, etc. And, you know, you can't scale that. Um, you know, I think the smallest classes I had uh, in China were down to two students. And even then trying to give individual attention is really difficult. Um, so yeah, I wanted to build something that's really scalable and you can have that experience at, at home. Terrific. So can you tell us a bit about language confidence, um, what it is and how it works and why it actually does improve people's pronunciation skills? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's a, a AI SaaS company, I suppose you call it. So we provide a, a product that's called LCAT. And LCAT is similar in nature to speech recognition, but instead of deciphering what's being said, we make an assessment on how well that's being said. 
So um, a really easy example is in an, an app or a platform like E2School, you ask the students to say a particular word, they record their input, that's sent over to our backend. We make an assessment and we send back the assessment results. And how the, the assessment actually works is we, we give an AI, um, lots of native speaker data, we train that, the AI learns what is native or good um, give or take and when you send that audio in we come back with a, a score and that score is is how close to a native speaker the AI thinks that you are gotcha so so when I'm doing my pronunciation practice on Duolingo for example it's and I have played with that app it just tells me that I'm comprehensible um, it sort of goes ba-ting gives me a green thing yeah you said it right but um, in saying it right, I may have actually uh, said some of the sounds incorrectly or mispronounced particular things. However, it doesn't tell me that. So is this a big distinction between what you do and say Duolingo? Yeah, absolutely. So your big groups like Duolingo and, and Babbles of the World, they use the on-device speech recognition. So that's the Siri or the Nuance or Google speech recognition that comes on iPhones or Androids. Um, and all that does is that gives you a pass or fail. It gives you a tick or a cross. And in that, that video that we made, um, I'm using one of these, these platforms um, and I actually say the wrong word and still pass the test, you'll get the green tick. Um, I think they were asking me to say mineral water and I said mini wasa and I still get a green tick and pass and move on. Um, whereas in our system, it comes up and it's like, hey, you got all, all of this right, but you went wrong here, here, and here. Um, so, to, and the step beyond that is to, to move, um, create like a personalized learning scenario and a, a proper feedback loop. But the, state, the first step is just to identifying where, where you went wrong. Nice, nice. It might be worth just stepping back a little bit here and just um, talking about what pronunciation actually is. Um, and it's a really strange feature of language because um, it's very anatomical it you know it really does involve the tongue and lips and throat and roof of the mouth it's very strange when you're uh, it, it's sort of a there's a cognitive aspect to it obviously um, but it's very much a muscular muscular and body parts thing which is which is pretty strange so my understanding of pronunciation is that there's sort of I look at it as having three parts one part is the uh, the sounds, the individual sounds, so the phonemes, so the vowel sounds, short vowels like a, e, i, o, long vowels, uh, combined vowels like a, for example. Then you've got consonant sounds like p, d, k, m, which actually are using a part of your mouth, uh, whereas a vowel is not actually using a part of your mouth. You're making a sound basically from the um, the voice box, but it's it's being unimpeded by the tongue or the lips, etc. So you've got all these, you've got individual sounds. Then you've got uh, consonant clusters. And one of the uh, researchers we have here at E2 Language just did a, um, she looked into the literature actually at consonant clusters in English, and she was trying to find a corpus or basically trying to find out what they are and how many consonant clusters there are in English. And she couldn't find it. She found sort of differing opinions and some literature from the 1980s, etc. So she did a full-scale study herself and went through and actually determined that there's 146 consonant clusters in English, which is really interesting. It's really nice to know that because it's finite. So you've got 44 individual sounds. 
Then you've got 146 consonant clusters. Consonant clusters are where you've got two or more consonant consonants that come together like p and r to make pr, or s and l to make sl, as in slip, for example, um, which is very problematic, as you would have known in, in China. Um, a lot of the um, East Asian, um, Korean, Japanese, etc., they love to put a vowel between those two consonants. And then the third part of pronunciation is, is not so much the sounds that we're making, but um, the, uh, the delivery of the speech in terms of the rhythm, the pausing, the connected speech, etc. So, so right now, um, where does language confidence help out with these aspects of pronunciation? Yeah, so look, overall English is really illogical. I mean, I, I think there's 12 different ways to make sh, 12 different grapheme combinations to make the sound sh. Um, don't quote me on that, I have to double check. <laughs> um, so it's really quite a, a difficult language. And as you said, there's, there's 44 sounds in the official um, international phonetic alphabet. Uh, and I think that's been around since the, I think 1890s. It was a French group that made it originally in, um, Again, don't quote me on it, but I have to double check. Um, and there's actually a, a, another coding system called the ARPABET, which is traditionally um, used for speech recognition purposes, not for, for language learning purposes. Sorry, what's that called? The ARPABET, A-R-P-A-B-E-T, I think. Um, I think it stems from Carnegie Mellon University. So it was a coding system they created to, to in parallel to the IPA for speech recognition, so for more like computer-orientated like speech recognition purposes. Okay. Um, I think where where we're at and where, where we're focusing on is, is exactly right, is, is the assessment of pronunciation relative to a native speaker. And mm -hmm. the idea is that a native speaker, based on their, their accent, will say each word a particular way. Um, and you have differences in those. And I think the, the tomato, tomato um, is a really great example of that. Um, and I think in all the different accents, there's a hundred and seven phones with all the different accent oh, variants. Oh, wow, interesting. Yep. So, and I've seen even other phonetic alphabets that, that move towards, I think I've seen one with 39 sounds, mm. and it, it, it's a real complicated mishmash. But we're just focusing on just the international phonetic alphabet, the 44 sounds of English. Yep. Um, that seems to be the most common, most in-demand um, reference. For, for learning to speak English. Yep. And we, we're currently just focusing on pronunciation, but moving further down the track, and I think you touched on this on your, your third point, is um, looking at other aspects of, of spoken English. And it was, really took some time to quantify what they were. So you've got pronunciation, so that the sounds that you're, you're trying to say, and that's really the, the core metric. So if you get the sounds completely wrong, meaning isn't conveyed at all. So you have to get at least X percentage of the sounds right to be able to convey any meaning at all. Um, and then from there and adding onto that is, you know, your, your fluency, prosody, um, grammar, lexical resource, and then content relevance. So essentially we, we tried to start with pronunciation, which is actually the most difficult mm. problem yep. to solve technically. Yep. Yep. And it's taken a while, but we're finally there. And, and then moving on to other metrics like um, fluency is our, our, our next step. Yeah, I really like uh, language confidence because uh, we use it in E2 school uh, in our pronunciation course and it's terrific because we get the student to um, practice particular uh, 
individual sound or a consonant cluster, and then we get them to do a repeat sentence or just a single word, etc. And they get to they speak into the computer and it almost immediately spits back a response, a percentage response, like a score. But much better than that is when they click on it, they can actually see which particular phoneme they're uh, mispronouncing, um, which is, uh, it, it, I mean, that's hugely helpful because they're either unaware of that or, um, or maybe they were aware of that, but now they're acutely aware that, okay, I need to try that put sound again and not make it sound like a but sound. So there's that element there. Um, what should students do though, or what do you suggest students do once they've sort of found out that they're having trouble with the put sound, for example? So I think at, coming from a, a teaching point of view, um, what I always tried to do with students was nicely identify the saying, hey, that wasn't quite right. Um, and we gave them more content, maybe in a different context to practice. So you got this sound wrong. Um, so as a human, as a native speaker, I hear, uh, hear that you went wrong here. And then I can say, okay, what's another word that we can practice mm -hmm. um, that contains that same sound so you can practice it in a, a different content, a different context, different content, different sentence. Um, and that's what we tried to do. So the first step of Elkhead is just identifying where they went wrong and then moving past that and moving forward is being able to offer some suggestions, so corrective suggestions, um, and then good or, or correct examples of those. So if they get the, you know, R or L or Z sound wrong, um, one word my students used to struggle with, which was casual, Mm. And another word is just pick was usual. And we put that in a different sentence, we get them to practice again. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the idea is that with LCAT, it's, it's able to emulate what a teacher can do in picking where you go wrong. And then the students are able to see that, listen to the good example and actually try it again and, and keep practicing until they can get it right. Yeah, it, it really is. I've been um, mucking around with Farsi language and trying to do the <laughs> sound. <laughs> Hubi, um, and it's, uh, I've just found it's quite fun or it's quite a good idea as a language teacher to, to, to do that, to speak, um, to start saying some sounds in another language that you just do not have in your first language and to feel how uncomfortable and strange and, yeah. and then just try to make it feel, uh, you know, normal, normal or standard to do it. Yeah. That's interesting. I absolutely agree. When I was learning uh, Mandarin, there's sounds that exist in Mandarin that as an English native speaker, you never learn. So it was really difficult, especially as an adult, to actually practice those particular sounds. Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, the good thing is when you do learn another language is the, um, you know, a number of, let's say there's 44 sounds, you know, let, uh, I think in Arabic, they'll have 38 of them. Um, and they won't have, I won't do the maths on that, six of those sounds that just they don't have. And so they'll need to practice those. So. Um, I think some of the literature that's really helpful there is, is that first language interference literature. Um, what we've done in E2 school is um, we've, got this, we've got all the sounds there. However, we've got this little um, tool whereby that curates the content. So I'll go in and say I'm an Arabic speaker and then it will just tell me which particular phonemes I need to work on because I don't need to do them all. Um, there's also literature around that for grammar, which at some stage we'll get to as well. But uh, yeah, no, it's interesting stuff. Um, I might shift the topic a little bit here to talk uh, less about the sort of technicalities of pronunciation and more about, I'm interested in the 
social element of pronunciation and why somebody would want to improve their pronunciation. Um, I've got a few ideas, but I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Like why, if I'm going to get a job in the UK or, um, or for whatever reason, why do I want to have clear pronunciation? I think as an overarching theme, pronunciation <clears throat> is, is basically the, the when in spoken language or spoken English, if you your pronunciation is completely off, no matter how accurate your, your grammar or vocab or fluency, you can't actually convey what you're trying to say. So if your sounds are wrong, uh, and I may be wrong academically here, but from my experience in teaching and, and learning other languages, if your pronunciation is wrong, you can't actually convey any, any meaning. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, people learn to speak other languages for a whole wide range of reasons. I think obviously being a, a, a test prep group, you understand there's a massive market out there for people that want to take recognized tests like PTE, mm-hmm. yeah. um, IELTS, TOEFL, et cetera. Uh, there's lots of people who want to do it for fun as well. They really enjoy learning languages, um, the polyglots of the world. Um, and then there's people that want to do things like travel and you know, travel to, to a different country and be able to say, where's the bathroom or how much does that cost? Um, and those things that you learn, they're really basic things like when I first moved to China, I did not did speak Mandarin and I got horribly lost quite a few times. So it was really handy to be able to say, go straight, turn right, stop here. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's really the, I think the academic one is a very large one studying overseas um, for fun, for travel, things like that. And that's really the, the core of in spoken language of really conveying any meaning and be able to communicate with someone. That's it. Yeah, about yeah being being understood. Um, so you you mentioned before about graphemes and phonemes. Um, can you just explain to me or explain to the audience uh, what 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 a, what is a grapheme, what is a phoneme, and what is the relationship between the two? Because I know in English the the relationship is often not quite there. Yeah. So, um, and again, I'm I'm not a, a linguist or a phonetician, but. I, um, I'm, I'm a sort of a, a technology background, but mm-hmm. English itself is made up of a mishmash of a range of different languages, Latin, German, French, all of the above. And um, so graphemes is our, our alphabet, the 26 letter alphabet. And our phonemes is the, the, the sounds and the phonetic alphabet. But the obviously 26 letters, 44 sounds, they're not going to, to match up. Mm-hmm. And I think a, an example that I mentioned before was that you can make sh sound in 12 different ways in English. So 12 different grapheme combinations make the sh sound, one sound. So it's not just SH? No. Right. Okay. Gotcha. There's SS and there's ZH and there's... TI and TI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and it's like, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's not very logical, but it it does exist. And, you know, it's like um, communication. Um, So it's, it's, it's a tough language. So that's, and that's the relationship. They don't line up, but there are sort of more general rules that account for most of the cases, but there's, there's not one clear rule um, for, for all of them. I think, I think that's extremely frustrating for people who are studying in their uh, country like China or South Korea is they learn they learn like textbook English. This is what I, I, I taught in South Korea for a couple of years and um, you know they sort of they I've got to say the Korean language is fascinating because they actually have um, I think they call it like perfect orthography which means that like the spelling sound relationship is basically one to one. there's no exceptions. 
Yeah. <laughs> but as you say in English, the spelling sound relationship is radically different because communication, T-I. Um, and what happens with, with Korean students is they, um, you know, they learn these texts and they learn the grammar, etc. Then they'll land in Australia or in the US and all of a sudden they're just like, what's everybody saying? I've been studying English for 12 years and I can't understand anybody and there's this crazy things like, you know, one of the things we do in English is um, if you, what you want to do this weekend, whatcha, whatcha, what do you want to do, whatcha. So these crazy sorts of blends and and whatnot. And, and that proves a real technical problem as well. Like the, we, yes, we, right. we had a, some real issues when uh, you can join two sounds that are the same. So uh, if you say after the show, we, as a native speaker, you, a native speaker, you say after the show we, you concatenate the join that that word sound. Uh -huh. Yep. And, and the AI looks for the two sounds because it's based on our dictionary or lexicon. It says, hey, there's two sounds. And even though you get a good score for one of the sounds, it will score you lower for the second sound, even though as a native speaker, you just joined gotcha. it all together. Yep. So it actually creates a lot of technical problems, even when you've got a native speaker speaking to try and get this all, all right from a... Um, and, and from a product and accuracy point of view. Well, yeah, it's really messy, isn't it? Like even the question, how are you? We don't say that. We say, how are you, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you have to then train the machine to recognize that. I think the rule is there that if there's a vowel sound followed by a consonant sound or something gets joined together or moved. So, so your machine recognizes these little rules. Yeah, so we, we had to, when we first released the, the, the product, we had all kinds of issues. Um, you know, obviously, when you first launch, um, our service crashed, actually. We had so much usage with a right. group, yeah. group in Korea, yeah. our service crashed. Um, and um, sort of the infrastructure out, and then from a, a content accuracy point of view, being able to assess sentences like, after the show, we, and how are you, um, and it's mainly a, a, a data problem to solve, right. um, but then you also have to be clever with the way that you actually set up the, the I suppose, the dictionary or the lexicon to make it all work nicely together. Gotcha. Okay, I'm just trying to imagine how the, the, the systems program. So, because there are rules there, and one of the rules is, oh, you know, some, sometimes we add a sound as well. We add these add sounds, we delete sounds. I think they call them elisions and deletions technically. Uh, wow, so, so, okay, so you have to program the system and it's just not as simple as pumping in a dictionary and saying this is how it all sounds. So who actually, who actually programmed all this and how, does, uh, how did that come about? So originally when I started this, um, I was living in China, I was teaching um, I hadn't spoken to my parents this was a few years ago now. I hadn't spoken to my parents for about three or four months when they said, hey, we want you to go and get a normal job and, and go back to uni and things like that. Right, yep. And um, I put together a list of uh, researchers around the world that had skills in particular areas, so AI, deep neural networks, um, computational linguistics. And I literally picked up the phone and started calling them and saying, hey, I want to build this. Can you help me? Uh -huh, and nice. and um, I found a lot of help at, at MIT. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we found a, um, a few uh, young, pretty switched on guys over there in the 
um, to, to advise us and we found a team to actually build, build the product. Wow. And um, it took a, a long time to go from, I think our first working demo was five sentences. Mm-hmm. And then the jump from five sentences that worked accuracy, accurately to a product where we could scale it millions and millions of times um, for like millions and millions of uses and then also make it accurate for a wide range of content it was such a big gap. It actually took us quite a while, but um, on, a, on a nice sort of upward trajectory at the moment, uh, I think we just hit 20 million API calls in production, which is really cool. Nice. Um, and then also looking at our own automated English test and, and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's all started with a, a list and lots of LinkedIn messages, lots of cold phone calls. Um, quite a few people hung up on me, but it's all, <laughs> all part of it, right? Wow, man, that's amazing. So then they had to collaborate with each other. It's like, so you sort of pulled a team of researchers together. Yeah, yeah, we put a team and, and found some um, really great programmers over here as well in, in Sydney, um, studying things like maths and physics, uh, places like UNSW to, to pull it all together and, and get it up and up and running and from a, an idea to actually working and, and being a real product. Far out. That's amazing. I actually didn't know that part of the story. That's cool. And so you said you've had 20 million API calls. So that means that 20 million students have clicked the button, spoken into the computer and gotten feedback. That's that's insane, man. Because if you think about uh, how many teachers it would require to give 20 million verbal pieces of feedback to a student, it's it's like it's unthinkable, right? Yeah, it's it's really cool actually. Uh, we hit ten million really quickly because obviously through through COVID things were pretty busy. Um, but um, yeah, we hit twenty million just recently, and yeah, I mean it's really exciting that that we're actually having an, an impact on helping students learn, doing it well, making it scalable. Um, I mean, there's definitely a, a social aspect to the business. I think that what we're doing is a net benefit to society and education. So it makes me. Yeah, really excited and, and really happy, sort of very fulfilling. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there is a definitely a net benefit to society. It's interesting, you know, we live in times where, where people are very conscious about different sort of um, different forms of discrimination. Um, and I think we're doing well in progressing society and, and whatnot. And, but one form of discrimination that I think is overlooked is accents. Um, people are extremely discriminatory based on accent. Um, I read something somewhere, it was like a magazine article, and it was like, which is the most preferred form of English, the English language, and which is the worst form? And this is kind of terrible research, but they're saying that male British accents are the most favoured forms of spoken English, and the worst was male Vietnamese speakers speaking English because of their first language interference and how different Vietnamese pronunciation is, that people mm. dislike that they dislike Vietnamese spoken English, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, and this is, it's awful. And, um, you know, I think making changes around discrimination, making people more aware of it is essential. But there is, there is a, a part to play with the student there and what you're doing, is, which is actually helping people to speak more clearly and to overcome, um, you know, those, those deficiencies. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, and I've definitely been guilty of it as well, where I found myself judging someone's intellect by their ability to communicate verbally. Well, yeah. And and 
when, which is completely incorrect. It's just a, a native, a natural thing, I think, where you're like, oh, we can't communicate, therefore, you're, you know, not very smart. And that, to me, like, when you realise that, you're like, hang on, this is not not correct at all. It's just an inherent natural thing. Um, and have definitely found myself in that scenario before, but learning languages and teaching language, you understand that it's actually nothing to do with that. It's, it's that ability to communicate is really important. Um, and that's really definitely part of why we do this and why we go through the grind that is a, a startup um, mm. and the roller coaster yep. ride of, of all this is that giving I mean my vision for the the where this goes in in 10 years is is any student anywhere in the world on a smartphone can have a fully open-ended automated language lesson with a, an AI tutor that's really where I see that the vision for this and that takes away a lot of that that prejudice um, against um, and opens a lot of doors for, for those learners as well that can't pay $50, $60 an, an hour yeah. for a teacher. Yeah. Um, is they can pay $5 a month for a really high quality lesson on a, on a phone. It's really scalable. So are you going to move um, into or look at interactivity? Because uh, right now, and this is a, a limitation of a, um, some English language tests out there as well, is that there's no interactivity involved in the in the assessment of their speaking. They read aloud or they repeat a sentence or describe an image, etc. Um, I think there's limitations in, involved in English language tests that actually have interactivity because of the nature of the interlocutor. But can you talk to me about how language confidence might get there with interactivity? Yeah, so one of the big technical problems that we faced originally was how do we make this, on top of making this product scalable in terms of the, the infrastructure, how do we make this product uh, able to assess a wide range of content? And this took a long time to figure out how we make the product able to assess a very, very wide range of content. And what we did is we ran experiments and we figured out for each word how much data or sets of data that we needed to, to make the AI accurate. And then we extrapolated that information and made it accurate for the, the 10,000 most common words in English and any combination thereof. So at the moment, you can just type in the text, speak, and get your assessment result back. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, that's still a closed-end scenario. From a testing and from a learning point of view, it's so incredibly important to have open-ended, creative Mm -hmm. um, questions and feedback and answers, questions and answers. So um, the next step for us, and we've, we've had a lot of interest in this, is actually having an open-ended assessment. So gotcha. we know, know we can do the assessment of the, the, the content once we know what it is. Um, and But what we need to do is first be able to recognize what that is. So we actually have a, a demo on our website where you can just talk and then we do the assessment. Uh-huh. Um, so you can have a more creative, open-ended response to that. Um, obviously, there's limitations with that as a product. So, you know, using the uh, speech recognition deciphers what's being said, that we, then we make the assessment on how well it's said. All of that is based on how accurate the recognition is from a, a, the very first step. So if you have a, an earlier learner or someone with a heavy accent, even the best ASR in the world isn't going to give you back an accurate reading on their um what they've actually are trying to say um context comes into it mm. but uh there's actually i think we found a way around that but it requires quite a, a bit of development so definitely looking down that path um and in the the automated test that we've built as well we're actually experimenting with that as well as having 
one to three minute answers asking students about art, the environment, and you oh, sort of nice. IELTS style questions. Yeah. Um, and then doing that as a fully automated open-ended assessment, uh, which is really, really cool and really exciting. I think that that's really where we'll, we'll take off and that's our, our niche and our, our focus is to, to work on that. Um, because yeah, as you said, from a, a testing point of view um, and from a learning point of view, it's really important to have that, not as a read the text or um, read the sentence, repeat the word, um, that can only assess so much, but to really get a good gauge of someone's language ability and, and to help them learn is to have that open-ended uh, dialogue with them. Yeah, nice, yes, yeah, that's that's huge. So, so the issue with open-ended responses then is really content, is that correct? Ironically, all the other metrics, so fluency and prosody uh, content agnostic, so you don't need to know what's being said, uh -huh. but for pronunciation, so the sounds, uh -huh. you need to know what the user is trying to say, and then you can make the assessment on how well oh. it's said. So is this how it works? So let's say I'm describing a picture of the Eiffel Tower, um, and so I'm saying sentences, and then it's transcribing them into words, like like um, a transcription service for, for like voice typing for example uh, actually i have no idea how the hell it works how does it work <laughs> so so you use speech recognition to decipher what's being said as the first step yep. and that that gives you the text and once you've got the text uh -huh. so you send that with the audio to our api and we make the assessment and send back that result okay so it's looking It'd be looking at the sounds, so it'd be taking it through your pronunciation evaluation software, but then the words as well, it'd be making a sort of semantic map and saying, yes, he's talking about whatever I say about the Eiffel Tower, and then giving me a score for content as well, and possibly even grammar. It, wow, it gets really... Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly the plan, yeah, is to have uh, six, six core metrics, and it's sort of the, the, the way that we could take how you convey meaning and actually quantify that and, and put it into buckets, essentially compartmentalize it. We've got pronunciation, prosody, fluency, grammar, vocab or lexical resource, and then and content relevance. Mm -hmm. So those six metrics is we, we sat down and broke it down, looking at everything from your IELTS rubric to technical requirements to what can we do, what can't we do, um, and, and then put it in that pipeline where that's how we think and that may change how we think that you'll actually be able to deliver fully automated open-ended assessment using those those metrics for testing and for for learning as well. Nice, nice. And then and then one day in the distant future there will be interactivity with where you'll actually be able to converse, but that's that's a different ball game, isn't it? It is. I have the plan for that written out. Know exactly how to do it, but it's oh, nice. it's it's very difficult technically. So yes, it will happen, but yeah, not for a little while. That's when, have you seen that movie, Her, when they have the little earpieces and he falls in love with the, have you seen that movie? It's a, no. What's it, Hakim <laughs> Phoenix or whatever his name is? It's a beautiful film. It's actually one yeah. of my favorite films. And um, they have these earpieces. It's set in the future and he's, he falls in love with the, the AI in his ear, but then he realizes everybody's in love with their AI because they have these wonderful conversations. Yeah. Um, it's worth watching. It's really, it's really neat. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. That's really interesting. Um, so just quickly, tell me about this test that you've created. 
Yeah, so we're working with a, a group called Homes Education Group, um, and we're using the basically in partnership with them. We've built a, a an automated test. So Duolingo released one um, uh-huh. mid yep. COVID, I think it was about a year ago. Yeah, and it was sixty nine dollars, and I don't think it was automated. I still think there was a human element in the assessment, mm-hmm. um, whereas ours is is fully automated, um, starting with a for. Uh, sorry, fully automated and for speaking and listening to start with. Um, and the original use case was using it to, to streamline applications for schools and universities. Um, but as we keep building and developing this, it actually looks like we'll use it for the actual entry exam so we can automate that process. Wow. Um, and like, it will never replace IELTS, I don't think, um, but we definitely like to move move in that, that direction with the technology. Wow. And um, does it test, what skills does it test? At the moment, it's just speaking, listening, but we are adding yep. reading, grammar, comprehension, etc. Great. Yeah, because a lot of those tests um, really neglect speaking. Like TOEIC, for example, uh, was very much, as far as I know, was a very much a, a listening and reading test because, because um, speaking is expensive to assess. It usually requires people. Um, I know we have to, at E2 Language, we... Um, we mark a lot of writing and speaking assessments, and um, you know, yeah, we're we're still using human raters because uh, for that level of complexity, like an IELTS essay, we haven't found any AI that um, would satisfy the students, and the students really need to be satisfied because they want very high level feedback and explanations, etc. So, yeah, it's a, I mean, an amazing market if you if you got in there and, and cracked that one, that would be really something else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely difficult, but uh, I think we're on the right path. Yeah, I think big problems like this, you just have to start chipping away at it, at them, don't you? You just have to have a bit of an idea and uh, solve little little problems until you've solved the big problem. We're, I mean, we're trying to solve the big problem of teaching English on a computer um, and working out how to do that. And it's been, well, I've been sort of looking at this stuff for 10 years and I'm still changing my mind and still haven't worked out how to teach grammar. <laughs> That one's, that one's, I don't know how to teach grammar, man. That's a, I've gone through so many different, uh, you know, I've swung from this way to that way and back to this way. And then finally, I think I've given up and maybe I'm close, close now that I've given up. <laughs> uh, I mean, cool. Sorry, go on. I was going to say, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because I think in uh, like Mandarin, you, you say, Nizai Kanshima, and that's you at look what, not what are you looking Whoa. at? And I think Germans and French and all the Latin-based languages are sort of similar with the structure of the language. So is, is English the only one that's that's our structure? Is that correct? Uh, I don't know. What you can look at on Google Images, which is fascinating, are morpheme maps. If you type yeah. in morpheme map, what it does, it puts, in, puts the English sentence at the bottom. Uh, what are you looking at? And it'll put the, uh, the Chinese Mandarin sentence at the top, and it'll actually draw a line to show word order. And some of them are just ra- radically different. You're like, I mean, that's just word order. It's just let alone how do the verbs work and how do they indicate time and yeah. uh, grammars. I, I find the grammar totally fascinating, but unsolvable, it seems. Yeah. Cool. Nick, how can people um, reach out to you and find out more about uh, language confidence? Uh, jump on our website, so languageconfidence.ai. Uh, or send me an email at nick at languageconfidence.com. 
Nice. Um, yeah, the, the demos on the website, have a play around um, and let us know any feedback. I'm always looking for partners to, to improve the product. That, that's how we work with our partners. It's a really collaborative relationship. I think um, you spent quite a bit of time with our, our CTO down in Melbourne, yeah. um, figuring out product and best use case and how we use this and things like that. So yeah, get in touch and we'd love to hear from you. I, it, look, it's made a big difference to our platform, E2 School, because the pronunciation course, I mean, if they're, we had two choices, either not give them feedback or pay a teacher, in which case the cost of the course would skyrocket and nobody would use it. So what we've been able to do with Language Confidence is provide lots of feedback to the student. And I think the course is $19 um, for three months or something. So yeah, it's a hugely valuable uh, tool for us. And, and, and yeah, our students are using it, which is great. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, yeah, we really enjoyed working with you guys as well. So it's, it's been good fun and um, looking forward to uh, quite a few more years of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll keep branching out and see where we, where we get to. Cool. Thanks very much for joining me today, Nick. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to E2 Talks. Remember to check out e2language.com for PTE, IELTS, OET and TOEFL courses. And if you need help with general English language learning, check out e2school.com. Thanks!